0: Well, welcome again
1: to Cross Point Church. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. It is great to be here with you this morning. And uh, this morning, I'm uh, promoting downtown West Dallas. Uh, and, and downtown West Dallas for us, it's a la carte is today. And if you've been hearing about a la carte the last few weeks, and maybe I'll talk a little more about that later, but downtown West Dallas is uh, 70th through 76th Street on Greenfield Avenue. That's downtown West Dallas. It's not a huge district, but. It has become for us kind of the the bridge between us and the community. That's the place. Downtown West Dallas is the place where we have the most contact with the community of West Dallas. Thousands of people every year we, we rub shoulders with in downtown West Dallas. They have four big events every year. We're at every single one of them, and it's an opportunity for us to get to know our neighbors here in West Dallas, to be a blessing to them, and to just show the love of Christ. Today... At a la carte, between noon and 6 p.m., somewhere between 12 and 15,000 people will walk up and down those six blocks. It's probably a mile walk from 70th to 76th and back. Maybe it's a mile. And you can take your time, and there's great food and music and, and lots of people. It's a really fun time. There's lots of things to do. So, But it's an opportunity for us to be intentional and to meet new people and to give things away, to, to, to um, invite people to church and things like that. It's going to be a lot of fun if you can make it out. We are in week two of a series called How to Neighbor. And we started the series last week. And last week, it kind of laid the foundation for the series. If you weren't here, we talked about what it means to be a neighbor in your own neighborhood. And I uh, kind of challenged you to get to know your neighbors and gave you a little homework assignment, which we'll, we'll just check in on a little later. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about... We're going to kind of peel back another layer to this, and we're going to talk about race. Uh, this morning, we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk about racism and the fact that we as the Church of Jesus Christ have the responsibility and the ability to do something about it. And if I'm being honest with you, I have a very limited perspective on race. I do. But that won't stop me from leading change in my own life and in yours, because that's what we're called to do. Um, We are commanded and sent by Jesus to love our neighbors, especially those neighbors who look different than we do. That's what we're commanded to do. And today we're going to jump right into the Word of God and look at a very familiar passage in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. And as we get into this story, you're going to recognize... You're going to probably recognize it. I'm pretty sure most of you have heard it. Can you actually go back a, a slide? I forgot about something here. I wanted to, uh, one more. Okay, last week, you, the kids the kids uh, were all given this coloring sheet, and uh, I got to see one of them. This isn't my own child. This is somebody else's child. His name is Leo. He's somewhere in here, I think. And he drew this great, colorful picture of this neighborhood, right? And I just like the fact that not, not all the people in this picture had the same color skin. I appreciated that about, well, he did a really good job, didn't he? Let's give him a round of applause real quick. And uh, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So Luke chapter 10, the way, that this, the way that this whole thing starts is an expert in the law, the law of God, an expert in the law. This would be a, a, a Jewish biblical scholar comes to Jesus to test him. Um, and he what he asked Jesus is, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And something you have to know about, about the ex- experts in the law, especially trial lawyers, they never ask a question they don't already know the answer to. So he asks Jesus this question. He certainly already knows what he thinks the answer is going to be. And Jesus responds to him in chapter 10, by saying this, love the Lord your God with, oh no, I'm sorry. Jesus responds with a question. He says, what is written in the law? So he turns the question back on him. How do, you re- how do you read it? He asked the lawyer this question. And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus basically says to him, you got it. That's it. Now go and do that. Go and live that way. And it's almost like this, this, this lawyer, this attorney, this expert in the law, he didn't, it wasn't the answer he was looking for. It was way too simple of an answer. It was too clear. It was too open-ended. And he realized, if I actually, if that's, if that's the answer, and that's the whole thing, then I have to change my life. I'm going to have to change my life. I, I can't. I can't just do that. And it made the, it made this guy really uncomfortable. It's almost like it's almost like he was saying, "Jesus, wait a minute." In fact, he asked Jesus. He asked Jesus this question. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Wait a minute. We have to qualify this somehow. We have to put some conditions on this. Okay, Jesus, this can't be that simple. It can't be that straightforward. It can't be that black and white. We have to complicate this a little bit. And the reason he was saying this is because he wanted to justify himself. Right? He couldn't just go out and do that. In other words, he's asking Jesus something like, Okay, Jesus, are you telling me that I have to love people who look different than me? Do I actually have to love everyone? Do I have to love inner city people? Do I have to love all the people who have body piercings and tattoos? Do I have to love all those people who identify as a different gender than I do? Do I have to uh, love all the people who have a different sexual preference than I do? Do I have to love um, all those people who don't have a college education like I do? Do I have to listen to those people? Because, I mean, I certainly know more than they do. Do I have to love all the people who don't speak English very well? Do I have to love all those people are you serious? Who really, who, who really do I have to love? Is what he wants to know. And the thing I love about Jesus' response is, he doesn't tell this man who to neighbor. He tells him how to neighbor. He tells him how to neighbor by telling a story, a parable. And it's a parable that you almost all have heard. And this is the way Jesus starts the parable in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So here's a parable. And Jesus, Jesus there's an audience gathered around Jesus. They're all listening to him. They're all Jewish. And so in their minds, they're picturing a Jewish man walking on the road. And they're, he's walking on a road in the mountains. It was, it was known by the Jews to be called the Bloody Road because there was a lot of thieves and robbers who would hang around and, and jump out and mug people and things like that. And this man fell into the hands of robbers. He was beaten up, stripped, and left half naked, bleeding out on the side of the road. And if no one came to his aid by nightfall, he would probably be torn apart by wild animals and probably wouldn't last through the night. That's the picture we're given of this, this man, this unfortunate incident. There he is, he's... He's basically left for dead, this Jewish man. And Jesus continues telling the story. He says, two people pass by him first. The first is a priest, a priest, a Jewish priest, someone who stands and speaks on behalf of God, someone who serves in the temple. They receive sacrifice, offer sacrifices on your behalf to God. They intercede on on your behalf to God. These are like, some of the closest people to God, right? A a priest walks by, he sees the man, and he goes to the opposite side of the road and walks right on by. After that, after the priest, a Levite, a Levite walks his way. This guy also was set apart for temple service, born into a priestly family. And he sees the same man with the same need. And for whatever reason, I don't know if he was too afraid, if he felt like someone else is going to take care of this man, he walks by on the other side of the road and doesn't help the man. Okay? Now, that you, these are two men who are both a priest and a Levite. They're both, they're both very well-off, well-educated, influential They have all all the resources they need to help someone like this. These are the two kinds of people that, if we're hearing this story for the first time, we're thinking, these people are close to God. Why aren't they doing something to help this man? They have the resources. Why wouldn't they help someone who is in need, who is in such serious need? And, And then Jesus continues the story, and here's where the story just gets crazy. Then Jesus said... But a Samaritan, and as soon as Jesus would have said, "But a Samaritan," everyone would have gasped. A Samaritan—what is a Samaritan doing in this story? A Samaritan, and as you know, this is how this—you know how the story goes, right? The Samaritan doesn't go to the other side of the street. He actually sees the man. He sees the same man with the same needs. He goes to him. He bandages his wounds, he, take, he carries him, he puts him on his donkey, takes him back into town, pays for, his, uh, his, for him to be taken care of, he pays for him to have shelter overnight, and he says, I'll take care of all, these, all this man's needs until he's back on his feet. And this, was a, this would have been astonishing to Jesus' listeners. And the reason is that Samaritans were considered by all Jews to be racially inferior. They were considered by Jewish people to be half-breeds. There was 700 years of racial tension that existed between Jews and Samaritans because 700 years prior, the Jews were in exile in Babylon and some other places. And after God took some of the Jews back to Jerusalem, many of them were left behind, and they ended up intermarrying with pagans and having children. Those interracial marriages... Children were born, and they became Samaria, the Samaritans. They were a a half-breed in the minds of Jews. There was racial tension. There was religious tension because Samaritans believed different things about how to worship God and where to worship God. They believed different things about the Scriptures. They believed that God's Word was, you know, the first five books of the Bible. That's it. They didn't believe in the prophets and the wisdom literature and things like that. They had different ideas of how to relate to God and who's accepted by God and who's not. So, if I'm a Jew and I'm thinking about a Samaritan and I'm a traditional Jew in Jesus' day, I'm thinking this Samaritan is racially inferior. He believes the wrong things about God. I'm a Jew. I believe the right things about God. I'm born into this privilege to have a relationship with God. I'm a, you know, all of that. There's a lot of baggage, a lot of tension, a lot of history between Jews and Samaritans. And all of that, Jesus doesn't do this by accident. We know that, right? This is all on purpose. <laughs> and he's telling the story to Jews. He's telling the story to Jews. So, the reason this story is so provocative is that Jesus takes two people who are winners. They're winners. And he compares, the, he compares these two people... with with someone who's already a loser in his listeners' minds before he does anything good or bad, a Samaritan. And the guy who they think is racially inferior and believes the wrong things about God is the hero of Jesus' story. He gets it right. He does the right thing. He does the right thing. Now, what if you ask God, what if you ask God, God... What, I feel like there's some distance between us. What is the one thing I need to do to get right with you? What's the one thing you want me to do next? What is the one thing that I need to do to experience more of you in my life? And God said to you, well, let me tell you a story. There was a a successful suburban white guy who was driving through the inner city at night and he was carjacked and beaten and left for dead. A white pastor saw him and drove by. Then a white off duty police officer saw him and drove by. But then an African American homosexual atheist democrat who recently got out of prison stopped and helped this guy. And he took him to a hospital. He paid his bill. He saved the guy's life. You need to be more like that guy. Be more like him. Is is Jesus' story different? I don't think so. I don't think so. See, our problem. Our problem is that we like to be selective with our mercy. We like to we like to um, we like to decide who is worthy of receiving my mercy, who is qualified, who deserves my love and mercy. That's what we want to know. When God says, "You love your neighbor." I want you to love everyone with my love, regardless of what they look like, what they talk like, how much money they have, their education. You love them. And we like to say to God, God, wait a minute. That's too, that's too simple. It's too clear. Who do I really have to love? Who's really, who really deserves my love? Right? Don't we do that? And God says, listen, that's not the right question. The question is, do you love your neighbors? Do you love people of all races equally? Do you treasure people who look different than you? Dennis Leary said this about racism. He said, racism isn't born, folks, it's taught. He's right. There is no racist gene. He says, I have a two-year-old son. You know what he hates? Naps. If you go to, if you got a two-year-old, you know this, right? A two-year-old doesn't hate somebody else because of the color of their skin. That's something that's taught, not inherited. He's absolutely right. So let's talk about, for a couple minutes, how do we, how do we develop racist tendencies? How does that happen in us? How does that happen in people? How do we develop prejudice? How does that happen? There's three main ways. Number one, it's experienced. Maybe you have had in your life, you can think back to a time where you had a confrontation with someone from another race, or you were slighted by them, or you were mocked by them, or they did something to harm you or someone you love. And from that point on, you projected that onto every, every other person of that race. And you decided that everyone who has that color skin behaves that way and has that heart towards me. That's one way we develop prejudice. Another way is it's passed on from one generation to the next. It's passed on. Okay? Parents make assumptions or stereotypes or are prejudiced towards people of another race, and it's, and it's usually very subtle. Okay? It, it's, it's mostly learned by what the parents don't say and don't do, isn't it? Your parents may have never said anything explicitly. You may have never heard your mom or dad ever say anything explicitly prejudiced or racist, but you learn more from probably what they didn't say or didn't do. And children learn all of those things, and they develop the same assumptions, the same prejudices, and the same stereotypes as their parents. You know what prejudice means, right? It just means prejudging. It's prejudging. It's judging someone before they actually do anything. It's judging someone based on their appearance. That's what it is. We do this all the time. We say, we we believe things like, all rich people are greedy. Obese people are lazy. Attorneys can't be trusted. Well-educated people are arrogant. Young people don't work hard. White men can't jump. We all, sometimes that's true, yes. We all have done it, and we still, we continue to do it. The other thing, the other way that we develop, we start looking at other people differently is through ignorance. It's because we do not have understanding. We have not sought after, we've not really tried to understand people who look different than we do. We just haven't done the work. To get to know them and, and, and hear their stories. I grew up in Milwaukee, in the city of Milwaukee, in a very urban neighborhood. Okay? It wasn't in the inner city, but it was a very it was an urban neighborhood. We had an alley behind our house, there was crime back there. It was a pretty low income neighborhood. But it was predominantly white. We had we lived my I we, we lived there until I was in high school. So my whole childhood was in that neighborhood. And I experienced a lot of things, good and bad, in that neighborhood. We had neighbors across the street who didn't speak English. We had neighbors right next door to us who didn't speak English. When I talked to my mom on the phone this last week to, to get the whole story, because, you know, when you're a kid, you just, have a, you just have a slice. You just have your perspective. And I wanted to hear my parents' perspective on this, and so they gave it to me. They couldn't remember what ethnicity either one of those neighbors were. All they could remember is they didn't speak English. My parents did not go out of their way to neighbor those people. They were polite. They respected them. They never said anything bad about them, ever. But they also didn't love them. Unless they did it privately or secretly. But I asked them. (laughs) Okay, is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I grew up in churches my whole life that were full of white people. I cannot remember a single African-American, Asian-American, Latin-American person in any of the churches I grew up in. And you know what? Nobody seemed to mind in any of the churches. That I, it didn't seem to be a problem with anybody. I love my parents, okay? And I have to say that because they're probably going to watch this later. But I do love my parents. I respect them. They are hardworking, trustworthy, kind, loving disciples of Jesus. But they did not go out of their way to love people from other races and show me how to treasure those people. They were okay with separation. They were just okay with it. They were okay with segregation in our community and in our churches and in my life. And I, I know this because of what they didn't say and what they didn't do. That's how I know. And they owned up to it. They're different now. But that's the way it was. Our Here's what I do know. Our communities are not supposed to be racially segregated. Our churches are not supposed to be regu- racially segregated. Our schools are not supposed to be racially segregated. That is not the way God intended it to be. It's not the way God wants it to be. That is in no way a reflection of the gospel of Jesus. So something has to change. You know what it is? You know what segregation is? It's the consequence of sin. That's what it is. Craig Rochelle, who's a, uh, a, a pastor of Life Church, he says racism is not a skin issue; it's a sin issue. I'm not sure if he's, the, if he's the author of that phrase, but I heard it from him, and I think it's a great phrase. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You know what he's saying? He's saying that it's not right to show preference to certain people based on the color of their skin. That's not right. If you are doing that, if you are reaching out to all kinds of people who are your race, and you're inviting them and welcoming them in, and fostering relationships with them, and serving them, and helping them, and investing in them, and surrounding yourself with them, and you are not reaching out to people of other races, something is wrong. Something is wrong. you know what else? It's not right for me as a pastor to ignore issues of race. It's not right. And I have to be honest with you, I very much have in recent years. We hardly ever talk about this. And I need to apologize to you as, a, as our, you know, my church for not talking about this enough, for being passive, really, in silence. I should really apologize to my own family for not going out of our way to foster relationships with people in our community of other races, in this community of other races. We just don't do it. We just haven't been intentional. And the reason is really it's just because it's inconvenient. And it really saddens me to say that and to admit that to you. But that's kind of where we're at, and I just have to be honest with you. And that's why I have to say I have a limited perspective. I have to change. And I want to change. And I need you to help me. change. Will you help me change? This is something I'm asking you to do with me. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. So where do we begin? How how do we begin to change? How do we begin to see change in this area? How can we neighbor those who look different than us? How can we see beyond color? There's a couple things that I think we need to do. Number one, we have to admit that we have a problem. We have to admit it. Just, we have to admit that we have judged people based on appearance. because racism comes from pre, a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. And I bet that if most of you had the were, were totally honest today and you had the courage to, to just say what's true, you would admit that you were raised with some type of prejudice. Why? Because we are sinful people with sinful attitudes, And we are predisposed to making wrong judgments about people. That's what's true about us. That's just how we're wired as humans. People of all races are prone to this. This is not something you can just stop doing because you want to. This is a sin that is deeply ingrained in us. And it has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. Two generations ago, it was a lot worse My dad's father, I could tell you things that he said. It's not good. It takes time. But this is not a new problem. This is an ancient problem. This is a church problem. The church should look like the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is made up of all kinds of people. So why don't our churches look more like the kingdom of God? The second thing we have to do is we have to listen. We have to seek to understand others. And I don't understand. I just don't understand how people of other races have been abused, how they've been talked to, how they've been slighted, how they've been mistreated or rejected, and on and on. And it helps me to read their stories, to listen to their stories, and actually think to myself, what must it be like to be you? Have you, ever, have you ever talked to someone who grew up in our culture with a different color skin than you and asked them that question? What's it like to be you? What's it like, what what was it like growing up here, an African-American, an Asian-American? What was that like? I don't understand that. I, I can't relate to that. I have to admit that I have benefited from white privilege. I have to admit that. It's true. Because of where I grew up, because of who my parents are, because they both have college degrees, and on and on and on it goes. Because their parents had money to send them to college. I have lived a very sheltered life. And I have to admit that before anything's going to change. And then I have to go beyond that and welcome people of other races into my life and ask them, what is it like to be you? And then just listen. That's how it starts. You just have to listen. And once we're willing to listen, compassion is possible. And compassion is the key. That's the thing that we need. More than anything else, we need compassion. That's what the Samaritan had. He saw the man. He had compassion. That's what Jesus had. Jesus saw people in need all the time. And he was driven by compassion to meet their need. And that's the thing that we don't often have. Because we make assumptions about people. And we think we know their story. We think we know. But we don't. And so we keep them at a distance. Dr. Martin Luther King said this about Jesus' story. He said, the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man... What will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question and said, If I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Those are very different questions, aren't they? The second question is a gospel question. That's the heart of the gospel. If I don't stop, what will happen to them? That's the compassion of Jesus talking. Going back to the neighborhood that I grew up in in Milwaukee, I remember this family that lived across the street. They were a Hispanic family. They didn't speak any English, hardly any at all. And I remember there was a, an older boy who lived, I think he was a teenager when I was a little boy. His name was Angel. And he was the only, I he was, this was the only name I knew. Maybe it was the only name I could pronounce. I don't know. But I remember Angel. And I, I just remember him, and I remember saying hi to him at times and stuff like that. And... My mom would smile at his mom, she would wave. She was polite, she would say hello. But in 12 years of us living in, that, in our house, I don't ever remember my mom going across the street. I don't ever remember her crossing the street to actually have a conversation or try to have a conversation or just bring some, you know, bring a meal or bring something. I just don't ever remember that happening. And that's what has to happen if anything is going to change. We have to cross the street. That's what the Samaritan did. He went across. He could have stayed on the safe side, but he didn't. He went across the street, and he made himself available. He helped. He loved. He sacrificed. It may seem risky to cross the street. You may have a lot of what-if questions. You may not know what's going to happen. You may not know what to do. But you will never be able to show compassion to someone from a distance, ever. We have to cross the street. We have to draw near. We have to start the conversation. Or nothing is ever going to change. We have to get involved. The key to being a neighbor is compassion. And some of you might not feel, I mean, we might not feel compassion. Sometimes we think compassion is is all about the feeling. And feeling, sorry for that person, or feeling drawn to that person. And I don't, if you're asking today, how do I start feeling compassion for other people, for people who are different than me? There's only one way that I know how. I mean, aside from actually getting to know them, spending time with them, that's a great way to start. But there's an even more powerful way. And it's this. We have to remember how Jesus loved us. We have to remember that when I was still sinning, Jesus loved me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, we didn't change first. We couldn't have made ourselves right with God first. Jesus died for us first before we did anything good. Okay, we were all naked and helpless and left for dead spiritually. We had no spiritual life in us. We were desperate for mercy. We were the stranger who was beaten and bloodied and left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus saw us in our need, and He came to us in compassion. He crossed the street. He rescued us. He gave His life for us at cost to Himself to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God. There was nothing we could do to make ourselves right with God, there was no prayer we could pray, there was no offering we could give. There was no negotiating with God. We were dead. And Jesus died on the cross, gave his life, his life for ours, and made us right with God. He gave us peace with God. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the gospel. Grace for sinners. We didn't deserve that. He didn't look at us and think, oh, he looks like a good guy. I'll take care of him. We had nothing. We had nothing to offer God. And Jesus came and he healed us. He paid our debt. By his wounds, we're healed. And when we think about that, when we think about what God did for us in Jesus Christ, we can begin to look at other people and have the same kind of mercy. And we can remember, you know what? We we were totally separated from God. We were poor in spirit and dead. And Jesus did it all. He saved us. And that mercy that God has shown us, we're not to keep that to ourselves, my friends. We're supposed to love our, our neighbors. <laughs> love our neighbors as ourselves, Right? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the Apostle Paul wrote, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, this was not some dream the Apostle Paul had. This is a reality. He's saying this is the way it is in Jesus. Okay, you're not defined anymore by the color of your skin first. That doesn't mean you stop being white or you stop being black or you you stop being... That heritage, that ethnic heritage that you have, but it means that's not the first thing about you. That's not the most important thing about you anymore. The most important thing about you is Jesus. And once you have Jesus, that's all you need. Everything else changes. You start seeing everyone with different eyes. Back in 2006, I was in Ames, Iowa. I was part of my ministry training. I was in Ames, Iowa for four days, and we—I was like a crash course. I think for, we spent like 24 hours studying the letters of Paul with all these church leaders. And I was in a group of about 15, 16 people from all over the world. Um, the Middle East, West Africa, Southeast Asia, all over the world. I was the only American in the whole group of like 15, 16 people. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome, actually, to study the Bible with all these other men and women from all over the world, it just, it gives you a different perspective, you know what I mean? And we were talking about, I remember one day in, in this classroom, we were talking about metaphors for the church. And there's the, 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 the facilitator was up there, he was talking about, okay, the church is like a bride, the church is, um, I'm drawing blanks now, help me out guys, the body, is the great one. And, uh, you know, all these metaphors for the church. And and I remember raising my hand. I was really confident. I had this great metaphor. Like, family. Family. Oh, okay, family, you know. And then he writes it on the board. And this one guy from Africa, I remember this one guy from Africa, he's like, wait a minute. Are you sure family's a metaphor? I was like, well, we're not blood relatives. That's what I said. (laughs) And he goes, this is what he says. He goes, yeah, but are you sure? He's like, I think so. And he goes, aren't you and I covered by the same blood, the blood of Jesus? Aren't we united in the same blood? Isn't that blood, doesn't that blood run deeper than your family blood? And and at, as soon as he said that, a light went on. I was like, wow. I never really thought of it that way. It was, I, he was right. He was right. We are family. It's not just a metaphor. And here I was sitting in a in a room, the only the only American in the room, and this guy, this brother, you know, taught me that in that moment. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I don't think I could have learned that from somebody, from from another American. I don't think I could have. I don't think I would have. That's not the way God had in mind anyway. And it changed the way that I saw the church forever. It really did. And I realized, you know what? Sitting in this room with these brothers and sisters, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what heaven looks like. This is, the t- this is like a, a picture of the wedding feast. You know that, that picture in Revelation that Jesus gives? One day when Jesus returns, the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to celebrate with the feast, and we're going to be united with all of our brothers and sisters around the world. And it's going to be a colorful table, my friends. And it's going to be beautiful. This is God's reality for us now, who experience this now. As we take communion, we're going to take communion in just a minute, and we're going to share the, the, the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take the cup and the bread, and that's what it symbolizes. That's what it symbolizes. That's what Jesus told his disciples. The next time we eat this meal together will be in the new heavens and the new earth when my kingdom returns with all of your brothers and sisters from all over the world. And this is a picture of it now. So remember that. Anytime we take the Lord's Supper together, it's a picture of what's to come. That's what it is. When we will share a meal and a table with our brothers and sisters from every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation, That is beautiful in the eyes of God. Is it beautiful in your eyes? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to have the ushers come forward, and they're going to distribute the bread and the cup now.